0: There are five people living who know what it's like to sit over the left shoulder of the president during the State of the Union. The Speaker of the House presides over some of the nation's most intense and important debates and attempts to corral the legislative body into some semblance of cooperation, even when members of their own party stand in opposition. Good evening and welcome to our program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Meyer, Chairman of the World Affairs Council of dallas fort Worth. Our program tonight features the 53rd speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, John Boehner, who served in this position from 2011 to 2015. He is here to discuss his brand new book, On the House, A Washington Memoir, with Council President and CEO Liz Brailsford. Washington is a very different place now, especially in the aftermath of the events on January 6th. And I look forward to hearing their discussion on the politics of the moment and how we move forward from here. I can't wait for you all to receive your copies of On the House. That being said, you can purchase an additional copy or two or three of On the House at Mm -hmm. bookshop.org using our affiliate shop page displayed on the screen here. Bookshop.org backslash shop backslash DFW world. 10% of your purchase through our affiliate page comes back to the council, and that's just not on the house. That's for all the books you put in your shopping cart, so buy a bunch. Uh, Upcoming programs. The council has a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. The council is incredibly grateful for all of its generous sponsors, and I'd like to especially highlight the Dallas Morning News for their program sponsorship. So thank you, Dallas Morning News. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our wonderful promotion partners, the Fort Worth Club, the Downtown Dallas Republican Women's Club, and the World Affairs Council of Tacoma. We are so glad you are all here with us today. John Boehner was a small business owner when he first decided to run for elected office after witnessing what he considered The negative effects of high taxes and red tape on American entrepreneurs. From 1991 until his resignation in October 2015, he represented Ohio's eighth congressional district as a Republican and he was famous for his leadership abilities and candor. After two decades in office, he was elected Speaker of the House in 2011 and he immediately found himself in opposition to President Obama's vision for America. As the Speaker stated goals in Congress aim for a smaller, less costly, and more accountable federal government. Since 2016, he has been a senior strategic advisor at Squire Patton Boggs LLP. His new book, On the House, reflects on his time in Congress and recounts the lessons of success and failure he has learned from other legendary leaders, from Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan to, yes, Joe Biden. Here to guide the conversation is our council president and CEO, Liz Brailsford. Liz has been with us in Dallas for an eventful two months now, and I've greatly enjoyed working closely with her. Liz comes to us from Washington, D.C., where she was COO at the World Affairs Council of America. Her career has covered all sectors, nonprofit, private, public, and I really look forward to what we will continue to accomplish with her at the helm. It's all yours, Liz.
1: Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. I am so excited for this. I feel like we all need to have a glass of red wine, and I certainly hope our audience does. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. John, I promise that I will not make you list out all the names of your 11 sisters and brothers, Uh, and see if you forget one of them, as you mentioned in the book, and a past meeting with uh, one of the lobbyists. But I am going to tee us up with some information here. So I think a great quote to kick us off is, okay, so I'm not cutting my own grass anymore, but I'm still me. I was the same jackass when I left the Capitol as I was when I first walked in, and I still am today. This was An entertaining read, for sure. It was humorous, engaging, poignant, and just simply outrageous at times. I felt a great connection to your book, actually, because I've lived in both Minnesota and D.C. for a number of years and now live in Texas, all of which were featured in your book in various places, D.C. being the most obvious. I lived in Capitol Hill and have just moved to Texas a few weeks after January 6th. So things there are very real to me. I've been to the Italian restaurant that you mentioned on the, uh, it's on the hill, Alberto's. And as of the last time I went, they still have the dish named after you. And uh, I was always watching out for you. No luck. But uh, so I think it goes without saying, I'm very excited to dive into this. With you. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it.
2: Well, Liz, thanks. And uh, let me just say, take a moment to say thanks to all, uh, all of you who have tuned in tonight. Uh, we're going to have a fun evening. So grab yourself something to drink, sit back and enjoy it.
1: That's right. Thank you. Thank you. And it sounds like you got your first taste of civic representation when you joined your HOA board in 77 as soon as you moved to a new neighborhood, and you never looked back since. And in your words, I'd been in the neighborhood for all of a day, and all of a sudden, I was on the HOA board. Next thing I knew, I was Speaker of the House. But let's back up a second. Because uh, you're from the Cincinnati area of Ohio. You grew up in a huge family. Your grandfather, Andrew, who's uh, an American-born first generation uh, to German parents, opened a bar in the 20s named Andy's Cafe. Your father and uncles eventually took it over. And your father, with you being one of the oldest, uh, took you to the bar to work. This time was one of the most formative experiences of your young life. Tell us about that formative experience and what about that upbringing led, uh, helped you in Congress later?
2: Well, eventually I had 11 brothers and sisters. I was the second oldest of this crowd, nine boys, three girls. And uh, as Liz mentioned, my dad owned a bar. When I was about eight or nine years old. I went to the bar every Saturday morning at 5 a.m. Uh, we opened at 5.30 uh, to mop floors, clean out the waste baskets clean the urinals, wash the windows, do the dishes. I sometimes even thought I could cook. Uh, but uh, all the lessons I learned growing up, both at home and the bar, were the lessons I needed to learn to do my job as speaker. You know, I grew up in a big family. I have to learn to get along with each other, get things done together. Uh, you grew up around a bar, uh, you learn a couple of lessons. One, uh, you have to learn to the, the art of being able to disagree without being disagreeable. That drunk's gonna be sitting there on that stool all night. You don't wanna be fighting with this guy, but you're sure as hell don't wanna agree with him. And the second lesson you'll learn is that you have to deal with every jackass who walks in the door. Trust me, I needed all the skills I learned growing up uh, to do my job as Speaker of the House.
1: Uh, I think that is an excellent upbringing. In fact, I think everybody should have a job like that because it gives you this uh, character and backbone. That led to you being in Congress later. Uh, so you were elected to be Speaker of the House in 2011. What? And this is a, one last background-type question before we we pivot. But what actually does Speaker do? What does the Speaker do, or what is she or he responsible for?
2: Well, first, you're the leader of the majority party uh, in the Congress, uh, whether it's the Democrat Party with Nancy Pelosi, or in my case, when I was there, the Republican Party, and uh, And so you're the leader of the party. So you've got these party responsibilities. Uh, But in addition to that, uh, you've got what I'll call institutional responsibilities, uh, signing bills uh, before they get down to the White House. Uh, You've got a whole crew of people uh, who work in the Capitol uh, that do all the institutional things, the filing of bills, the recording of bills, uh, and uh, the maintenance of the building, all the people who work there. It's a... Uh, there's a lot more to the job than just being a legislator or being a figurehead.
1: So, John, why write this book now? Uh, shouldn't you be sipping on that glass of red wine, having a smoke, although no one should really be having a smoke, but enjoying your sunsets at your Florida condo that you frequent so often? Listen,
2: I'm not into writing books. That's not quite my thing. Uh, But over uh, after I retired, I thought, you know what? I've had a pretty interesting life, a very interesting career. Uh, I think uh, I think I might want to put a book together. Uh, But I didn't get around to it for a while, and then when I did, it took me a little while. And so uh, the the uh, uh, the date for this rollout just kind of happened by accident. There was no there was no foresight. There was no message uh, to be sent. Uh, Just happened to be now. Actually, it was yesterday.
1: Yeah, it was yesterday. Uh, So we're one of the first uh, to get these books. We're uh, very excited about that. We'll talk more about that uh, later. But let's fast forward a bit. So now you're a part of Congress. It's 1991. You're part of the freshman gang of seven. And even then you had your eye on leadership. Uh, You made it as kind of a renegade to the start uh, in that era uh, and your start in that era of reform, calling out other members, Republicans and Democrats alike, pointing out issues such as the House bank, the House lunchroom tab, and even taking the House to court. Spoiler alert, you lost that one. Uh, You later worked on earmarks. Does it seem hypocritical to you that you started off in the Gang of Seven as a new renegade member? only to be annoyed and frustrated with the upstart Mavericks that came up after you. But you were one of those first before souring on those that came later. What's different about you being a renegade and the new renegades that started cropping up in your later years and that exists in the House now?
2: Well, my early years, I was uh, what was then called a reformer. Uh, the institution I thought was a mess we had a house bank where... Uh, Uh, people bounced checks, didn't pay their bills. I mean, the place was really run as one Democrat chairman called it, run like the last plantation in America. It was a mess. And so all these things uh, got exposed over the first couple of years I happened to be in in Congress and I happened to be heavily involved in exposing them. And uh, and when it came to earmarks, I was opposed to earmarks. I was always railing against earmarks. Uh, I thought it was uh, not just a waste of money, but frankly, the way they were used uh, corrupted the legislative process and so there were a whole host of uh, reform-minded things i thought there ought to be a, an audit of the u.s house of our books every year and we've been around for 200 years and have never been an audit of the house's books kind of shocked me uh <laughs> and so uh you know i was promoting all of these ideas i eventually become speaker uh, and the guys that uh the guys that you know we had 210 215 good solid republicans uh, that you could work with day in and day out. But there were always two or three dozen knuckleheads uh, who all they knew how to do was to say no. And uh, and I was the establishment. I used to chuckle at first about this because me, the establishment, uh, <laughs> I was the conservative, the reformer, uh, and now I'm the establishment. Uh, now eventually I understood because of my position, I was the establishment. Uh, but uh, uh, my problem with them, was mostly over tactics uh, you know they were for the same kind of things i was for except it was all their way or no way period uh, we're going to balance the budget now not five years from now or two years from now or ten years from now uh, of course if i had to put a bill on the floor to balance the budget now they'd have run like scalded dogs and so mm-hmm. uh it was really over the, the only differences we have were over tactics and uh and you know, they just didn't want to play ball. I went there to do something on behalf of the country and not go there just to make noise. And if they weren't going to work with me and I didn't have a majority uh, of with Republicans alone, I'll sit down and work with Nancy Pelosi and we'll figure out a way forward. And we did
1: We are going to talk about that more later, but uh, it sounds like compromise uh, was harder for these these reformers, these renegades. Uh, Incrementalism, which you mentioned, uh, was difficult. So there were some major fundamental changes, it sounds like, between this group and you, Uh, but it's it's interesting. Uh, So how did you even get to be the Speaker of the House if you were such a renegade in the beginning?
2: Well, uh, one of the other things I did in the early 90s was promote the idea that we ought to try to become the majority party in Congress. When I got there, it had been 36 years since the Republicans were the majority party in Congress. I had this novel idea, that we ought to try to become the majority party. Nobody really thought it was possible. Uh, But after the 1992 uh, redistricting, uh, we picked up seats. Even though Bill Clinton got elected, we picked up 10 Republican seats. And some of us began to believe that we could actually be uh, the majority party. And uh, after the 94 election, we became the first majority, Republican majority in 40 years. And I ended up as the number four leader.
1: Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ Podcast, and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu.
2: And so uh, through all of that, uh, you know, I began to think, you know, I I might have a shot at this. Uh, And, uh, you know, if I work hard, uh, do the right things, you know, someday I could be the speaker. I had no interest in going to the Senate. And that was like going to a funeral home. You know, they're all in there gazing at one another. Uh, that wasn't quite my cup of tea. And I was never interested in being a governor. And so I knew uh, early in the nineties that whatever there was left of my political career was gonna be in the house.
1: Mm. Uh, and if, you're
2: not gonna, if you're not gonna shoot for the top, well, what's the goal? And yeah. frankly, my goal was to be the speaker.
1: I have a a feeling too that you being one of the oldest in your family, you working from a very young age, probably uh, gave you some of those leadership qualities that you felt uh, you wanted to continue as an adult, uh, particularly as you were brought into the HOA the first day that you moved to a new neighborhood in 77. Uh, So that's that's great. Hey, Liz,
2: Uh, if you're not the lead dog, the picture never really changes
1: that's right now
2: i I frankly i don't know what why or where but uh sitting back and waiting for something to happen was never quite what i did in life uh i was always trying to make something happen and uh and i got to congress and uh learned my way around uh but my leadership style is uh build on relationships uh even with the knuckleheads i had good relationships Uh, with most of the knuckleheads, but I had good relationships with both Democrats and Republicans. And while I was a Republican, I wanted to do Republican kind of things. Uh, I had respect for the fact that Democrats felt differently. Uh, We had the majority, so we could probably win most of the time. Uh, But because I treated them fairly and uh, even handedly, uh, it uh, actually nurtured those relationships with my colleagues across the aisle.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You, uh, since you brought that up, uh, I was going to ask this later, but let's go ahead and get to it now. You mentioned that uh, you had a really uh, good relationship with uh, Uncle Joe, now President uh, Joe Biden, and uh, you don't hear about that. It was a close and friendly relationship. Why aren't there more relationships like that across the aisle these days or are there and we just don't hear about them?
2: Well, I think they're, they are. They're there, but uh, people try to hide from it because uh, if it were known, uh, what would happen is uh, uh, the loudest voices in each of their parties would beat the hell out. Of them. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell, as an example, uh, have a good relationship. But my God, if they acted friendly toward each other, the far left would come down on Biden's head in a heartbeat. And the same yeah. way with the far right on, uh, on McConnell's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I don't know that the relationships are as close as they were uh, back then, but they still have these relationships. Uh, Joe Biden and I have known each other for 30 years. Uh, we, we knew each other pretty well in the 90s, uh, but in the 2000s, I think uh, we got a lot closer, especially when he became vice president. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he and I would have to sit behind the president uh, during the State of the Union or some other joint address. And uh, it was the hardest night of my year. The only thing that made it was good, I had Joe next to me. Uh, at least when we got started, we were having fun. Uh, you know, it was the president's night. Whatever I did, any facial expression I made, I was a dead man. So I would sit there and stare at the back of the president's head, President Obama's head. I can tell you how many hairs were on the back of his head uh, and try to make no expression whatsoever. Uh, but Joe, uh, Joe was, in the end, he became the negotiator on behalf of the administration. Uh, President Obama, I just well, that just wasn't his thing. He mm-hmm. was not what you would call a negotiator. Uh, but uh, when push came to shove, uh, they'd send Biden up to meet with McConnell and I. And, uh, and I, frankly, there's nothing that Joe and I couldn't work out in some manner. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, he's having a, a tough go of it here early on, uh, actually in his own party. People want to talk about the. Uh, the schism in the Republican Party. This is giant schism in the Democrat Party.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. And they've been
2: holding him hostage uh, since uh, Election Day and since he was sworn in at the expense mm-hmm. of uh, bipartisanship that is what is what Joe would rather do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he do not want to blow up the party. And so uh, he is, uh, uh, hes I don't want to say caved to the left, but he's, he certainly uh, has leaned uh, to the left wing of his party here in the first coming months. And, uh, and kind of push Republicans away. Uh, we'll see, but I'm hopeful that that won't continue, but we'll see.
1: I know so many of us would love to have more compromise and work, uh, working across the aisle and working in your own party. I think you're exactly right that both sides do have uh, polarization even within the, their own ranks. And so it's an interesting time that we're in. And just one note about uh, the State of the Union. I, I remember reading in your book about what a horrific nightmare that was just to coordinate all the logistics of that and get all the same people in the same building at the same time. But I can crystal clear, clearly remember watching your facial expressions during Obama's State of the Union addresses at that time. And you said in your book that one of the reporters said that you looked bored and you didn't want to be there. And it's pretty funny to think about, uh, that image in my mind from from those uh, addresses. Uh... It was
2: the longest <laughs> night of my years. No <laughs> yeah. cigarettes. Oh no my fine, God. And have to be and have to look bored.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just that straight... look
2: on my face. You see it? I'm yeah. Counting the, I'm counting the hairs on the back of his head.
1: <laughs> I can uh, picture it clearly in my head. Uh, well. On the note of interesting stories, uh, while you were in Congress, you've had a lot of those. Humorous or just plain crazy. We won't talk about all of them here because our audience is gonna have to read your book, but there was an anonymous congressman and the story about baseball, a Mark Meadows moment, an incident with Harry Reid. You mentioned, quote, lunatic Michelle Bachman, a great story about Mitch McConnell and another one with Gaddafi of Libya. But tell us the story of Don Young and the knife.
2: Well, Don Young is, uh, at this point now, he's still in Congress, the, the dean of the House. He's the longest serving member of uh, the House of Representatives, having been elected in the early uh, 1970s. He's a gruff old riverboat captain, and uh, and he's fierce about protecting everything for Alaska. And so I'm uh, and a big earmark. This guy lives on earmarks. So I'm on the floor in the early 90s, just railing on some highway bill, full of earmarks. After I finished my speech on the floor, I'm walking toward the back of the chamber. And next thing you know, this guy throws me up against the wall of the back of the chamber. And uh, he whips out this knife, and it's got this 10-inch blade. And trust me, that blade was sharp. It was right against my throat. And uh, he's screaming at me. And I'm looking at him. I got my head up because uh, I, I don't want my neck to get cut. And he got finished screaming at me. I looked at him and I went, like, "Screw you!" Except my voice was probably a little higher pitched. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Don Young and I got to know each other a little bit better. At, uh, and some 20, uh, tw- almost twenty-three years later, he asked me to be the best man at his wedding. You can't make it up.
1: I. I- could not believe that story. I laughed out loud. I can't believe I had a knife in there of that size. I mean, it's just incredible. I carries it in
2: his pocket all the time.
1: <laughs> it's really hard to believe that now. Uh, but let me transition to uh, let's talk about defining moments and regrets of yours in the house. You mentioned the, your most defining moment in all of your time in Washington, D.C. and while you were in Congress. Tell us about that occasion.
2: Well, I imagine you're talking about the Pope.
1: Mm. Or maybe you're not. I was, uh, the Pope is a good one. Let's, let's share that one because uh, it actually led you to retiring earlier than you anticipated.
2: <laughs> I, I had tried for 20 years to get a Pope common address uh, a joint session of Congress. We have world leaders do this uh, three or four times a year, and uh, we'd never have a pope. I happen to be Catholic, happened to have been an altar boy and uh, thought it'd be cool if we had the pope come. And so back in 1995, I sent a letter to Pope uh, John Paul and I never got an answer and he never came. And so when he passed away, uh, Pope Benedict got uh, elevated and I sent Benedict a letter, didn't hear anything. He came to Washington and he went to the White House. And uh, in fact, I had dinner with him at the White House, uh, but I couldn't get him to Capitol Hill. And so uh, when Benedict uh, passed away and Pope Francis got elevated, uh, I sent him a letter. And uh, I happened to be close to the Archbishop of uh, Washington at the time, a cardinal, uh, who uh, worked on the, uh, the Pope to come. So he agreed. This is like uh, February of 2015. So he agrees to come. My staff's working with his staff. And they decide he's going to be there on September 24th, 2015. Well, I find out my daughter's pregnant with my first grandchild.
1: Mm. Uh,
2: He's going to be born on August the 11th, about six weeks before the Pope comes. And so uh, a couple of these cardinals start working the Vatican over to get the Pope to baptize my new grandson. Well, you have to remember that the Vatican has a 2,000-year head start on bureaucracy over us. They are very good at this. So to make a long story short, uh, <laughs> they finally come back. And say, listen, we'd be happy to have the Pope bless your grandson, uh, but we really don't want. Uh, we don't want. Uh, we don't want to do a baptism. Fine. So we get to September twenty fourth, twenty fifteen. I got every camera in the world in my office. Uh, I'm there to greet the Pope at the Capitol, and uh, you might imagine I got tears running down my face. Mm. Yeah, look at that picture. Uh, I got tears running down my face. I'm a mess. Mm. And uh, we turn around. I looked halfway decent, and we take this picture uh, with, for all the worldwide press. And we had to go have a meeting in my office for about a half hour, seven cardinals and the Pope, uh, and me, and my, and my chief of staff. It was like, uh, it was surreal. So anyway, meeting breaks up. The, my family starts coming in from this adjoining room, and the Pope and I stand up, and the Pope looks for his assistant and finds me and says, give me a glass of water. Really? He's gonna baptize him. So I watched his assistant go get his glass of water. He brings it back to the Pope. The Pope takes it from him in his right hand. I see him transfer it to his left hand and I'm waiting for him to bless it. And you know what he did? He just took a drink. It was <laughs> the greatest head fake you've ever seen in your life. Uh, but the Pope uh, did a great job in the Congress that day. A great job, uh, that picture you just saw on the west front of the Capitol, just outside my office. And, uh, and then we went to leave. And so uh, there was a little departure ceremony. And uh, I put the Pope on my little elevator that used to be an air shaft in the Capitol mm-hmm. with a security team uh, down to the first floor. I ran down this pretty British stair- staircase to the first floor. And uh, and then I really wasn't ready. So they're holding the Pope and I back. And I look up. It's the Pope and me. And the Pope takes his left arm and grabs my left arm pulls me next to him. Him and he starts saying the sweetest things that anybody's ever said to me. Well, I was like a like a fire hose, mm-hmm. crying my eyes up. I'm still crying my eyes up, and he's still <laughs> talking to me. He puts his right arm around me, he gives me this giant bear hug. And he says, Speaker, will you pray for me? Well, who? Me? Well, yeah, 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 sure, I'm sure. <laughs> so by the time we got outside for the departure ceremony, uh To say I look like a mess would have been an understatement. But it was the happiest day I had seen in the the 25 years I was in Washington. Democrats, Republicans, House, Senate staff, uh, the whole campus was, was, it was a happy day. And I uh, was gonna leave at the end of 2015. I was gonna announce it in the middle of November. Uh, But I thought to myself, you know, it's not gonna get any better than it was today. Maybe I'll just do this tomorrow. I mentioned it to my chief of staff. and He said, why not? Mm. So I had a bunch of family and friends in town and we were all out of dinner and came home, went to bed, woke up the next morning. I was walking uh, back to my place from a little diner I had breakfast at every morning and, and uh, decided, yep, today's the day. Uh, and so I didn't have time to tell anybody. I had all the Republican members gathered at nine o'clock. I had to rush around and get ready, go over there and talk to them about about the legislation was up the following week. And so uh, no leaks, Uh, I got to look them all in the eye and tell them myself, it was great.
1: Wow, what a crowning moment and what a a surprise I'm sure for some, of course, we all know that Paul Ryan took over as Speaker of the House at that point. But uh, let's turn now uh, to talk about something that's relevant today somewhat uh because it's happened more recently but also happened in 1998 and you may know where i'm going with this but uh clinton got impeached president clinton former president clinton got impeached in 98 for the Republicans, this came as a strong recommendation from Tom Delay uh, in the run-up to the midterms in '98. And as a matter of fact, you ended up losing five seats instead of gaining seats as you all had anticipated. You were on board then, and you said in the book that you now regret supporting the impeachment. Black- no, I think
2: uh, I think it was a mistake. Uh, listen, impeachment. Bill Clinton violated the law. He he. Uh, uh he lied under oath it was an impeachable offense uh but uh, what i learned there is impeachment doesn't happen unless the public is for it and the public clearly was not for it uh just as an aside guess who called me today bill clinton he loved what i I had to say about impeachment in the book and he loved the book matter of fact i could hardly get him off the phone Uh, but uh, uh yeah it was uh uh, it was a, a lesson that I learned. Nancy Pelosi was trying to avoid uh, some of the crazies in her Congress who wanted to impeach Bill Clinton. And uh, she learned a lesson that I had learned at one point in my career as Speaker. A leader without followers is simply a man taking a walk. And she tried to hold off impeachment, tried to hold it off, hold it off, but her members wanted to impeach Donald Trump. And uh, she had no choice but to jump out in front of them and to, to support uh, their efforts, and so uh, it's uh, it happens once in a while, uh, but uh, you learn a lot of lessons along the way in this business.
1: Well, you learn a lot of lessons in any business, I must say. <laughs> uh, well, to tie that into today. Uh, First, uh, what are your thoughts uh, now on Trump's unprecedented two impeachments, and what would you have done if you were still in Congress?
2: Well, I don't know. When you're not there, uh, you don't know all the details. Uh, Frankly, I never watch news on TV. I read a lot, but I refuse to watch any news on TV because I can't figure out what the facts are. Mm.
1: Uh, But
2: uh, listen, uh, I voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, His policies, I thought, by and large, not all of them, but by and large, policies were things that I agreed with. Uh, His appointment of conservative judges was something I believed in. Uh, But uh, what happened leading up to the election when he kept telling the American people the election was going to be stolen from him, uh, and then uh, after the election, telling people it was stolen, without ever providing any evidence, no facts to support this. And he riled up an awful lot of Americans unnecessarily. And frankly, uh, I think he abused the trust and loyalty of his voters uh, by making those assertions without any facts, uh, which eventually led uh, to what happened on January the 6th.
1: Yeah, and let's talk about that lead up uh, a bit. Uh-How did we come from working across the aisle and from compromise, incrementalism, which you mentioned in the book? Slowly to the uh, the, the, well, slowly, maybe not, but to the hate of Barack Obama, uh, like you mentioned, and the conspiracies around him, even leading Trump to uh, spend some money to send somebody to Hawaii to investigate uh, Obama's citizenship. Uh, But to a slow but surely and steady hate of the other side and of the other, uh, we've just become so polarized. Uh, many say President Trump constantly sow division, which you were uh, mentioning just a few minutes ago, don't need to be sowing uh, more compassion and understanding of for our fellow Americans. And how do we get back there? How do we get to that compassion again during this polarized time? And why are we so polarized?
2: Uh, Liz, let's go back uh, 30 years. My first year in Congress. Uh, we had uh, three TV networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Uh, we had five major newspapers. Uh, we had a couple of major radio stations. That was the news. They set the national news for all the local papers, all the local TV stations. And uh, when you turn on the news at 6.30, you got the news. Uh, we had one radio talk show host in 1991 uh, that no one had ever heard of. Uh, There wasn't even an internet in 1991. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of the 90s, what happens? Cable TV comes along. And cable TV at one point was was one channel, it was about news. Next thing you know, it's six channels and it's all politics 24 seven. Then the internet comes along, uh, which allows people to organize much more easily with each other, talk to each other. And then we get social media platforms that come along. Uh, LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter, YouTube, get on the whole Facebook, the whole long list. And what's happened is uh, there's been this explosion of information about politics and government. Uh, some of it true, some of it not true. People from, believe send, send out all kinds of nonsense. Uh, and what's happened uh, is all this information, this explosion over the last 30 years has pushed and pulled people into one or two corners leaving fewer and fewer people in the middle. And frankly, what's making it worse today is because there's so much news, people get to choose where they get their news. Well, where do most people go? They go to places that they agree with, reinforcing the divide in the country. And so I've watched uh, this happen. I've thought about it a lot over the years uh, because I had to deal with the after effects uh, of a lot of this it what's happening. And uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, I wish there was a a, a silver bullet to to fix it, but there isn't. Uh, But uh, Americans are resilient. Uh, They'll figure this out, Uh, we'll find our way, but we're not there yet.
1: Do you think, uh, and this is a question from one of our Global Forum members, do you think the toxicity of news sources like Fox News and the polarization of the news and people's media consumption in general, contributed to the size and nature of the January 6th Capitol protest?
2: Oh, I think it was all the above, whether it was cable TV, talk radio, uh, Twitter. Well, I think all of it played a part. But what what really saddens me is that there were a lot of uh, honest, decent, hardworking Trump supporters uh, who showed up in DC that day. They got caught up, uh, they got caught up (laughs) Uh, in a rally uh, that was overtaken by some what I'll call domestic terrorists, some ultra right wing groups uh, that, that that played on those people's uh, anxiety and interest and, and, and turned this into this riot. The facts aren't all out there yet, but I'm anxious to see them, uh, who these people are, uh, but uh, no question. Uh, a lot of innocent people got caught up in something that they had never, ever thought would
1: happen. Well, as we uh, talk about the media and we talk about um, politicians and their role in things, let's uh, think about it uh, a little bit uh, deeper. In the halls of power, as so many people call Capitol Hill and DC writ large, uh, it seems like there are so many crossing each other and backstabbing uh, people and playing a game, uh, like when you described Mitch McConnell as playing a game of risk in his head at all times, or as you call it, Congress people, power mad expletives or the crazies in your own party uh, that you mentioned many times. I mean, should Americans be scared of the mindset of our politicians or that it's all a game to the elected officials that we voted in or is Congress a, micro, a microcosm of uh, the American people and do we Liz, need to be nervous about Liz, them? Liz. <laughs> is this too pessimistic?
2: The American yeah. people elected these people. Yeah, I didn't elect them, you didn't elect them, but their constituents elected them. And you have to respect the American people for their decisions. You may not agree with it, uh, but the American people uh, uh, are the real culprits here. I'll I tell you, I, I've watched this for a long time. Members reflect the loudest voices in their districts. Mm. And uh, you want to get elected, you reflect the loudest voices in your district. Why? Uh, Because who votes in primaries? In a Republican primary, it's the right of the right. In a Democrat primary, it's the left of the left. Mm. And uh, as a result, uh, we're sending uh, people to Washington uh, who are elected really by a minority of people uh, in their own congressional districts uh, who happen to be actively engaged in the process. We want to change this. We need traditional Republicans and traditional Democrats to play a more active role uh, in their primary process it Will team what we end up having in Washington.
1: Mm. Well, you say in the book that it's hard to move the dial far, and you know, and, and on a lot of in a lot of ways, I agree with you. But I'd argue in recent years, the dial has been moved. Uh, and you know now w- what it's doing now. Who knows where we'll go exactly? No one knows. But uh, we've we've made some major shifts. And yes, I think it does reflect the uh, the people who are voting in them in. So maybe it's that we're nervous about them. Uh, but all the while, we need to be more compassionate. So it's a it's a complex issue uh, that we live with on a daily uh, basis. We are uh, speaking with John Boehner former speaker on his book on the house, who do you think can help? And this is from Lara Hune. Who do you think can help reunite the Republicans in 2024? And this is actually one of my questions too. Who are you thinking uh, is might run from the Republican side? Uh,
2: uh, there are going to be a whole host of people uh, <laughs> running for president. I, you, you can see uh, over the years, I've learned the, uh, The the, the telltale signs of uh, the people are going to be running. And uh, there'll be a couple dozen people out there fooling around. Uh, I really don't have any idea uh, who the candidates are going to be. But uh, whether it's not, hopefully, it's not a personality uh, that we need to unite the party. Uh, What we need is someone that will help us focus in on what it means to be a Republican. I mean, I'm a Republican, I grew up in a Democrat household. Ronald Reagan helped me become a Republican. It was all about fiscal discipline, strong military, things that unite people uh, under the Republican label. It's not about personalities. And so uh, I've given this advice uh, to my colleagues uh, that are there now. Uh, If uh, uh, they want to have a chance of winning the majority uh, and uh, taking over the speakership in 2022, uh, they're going to have to unite the party. And the way to do that is uh, united around the traditional Republican principles uh, that we've stood by for the last... 150
1: years. Mm. Well, let's talk about uh, following uh, uh, traditional conservative values. And there are some in the party now that you may feel that are not doing that, particularly in terms of the deficit. But let's uh, turn to who you call the crazies in your book. And it's mentioned several times. You make an argument about them about chaos uh say more
2: about that about chaos mm, about- some of these members come in and especially uh over the last 10 years or so uh yeah now uh, you can create who you are out of whole cloth these days given the internet and given all of these uh, social media sites uh and uh, what a lot of them found out was the more noise they made the more chaos that they made the bigger their name grew and the more money they could raise uh, they could care less about the party. They could care less about uh, about governing. Uh, it was all about them. And we got them on the far left and we've got them on the far right. Uh, it's uh, It's been almost comical to watch if it hadn't been so sad.
1: I think it's a really interesting point that I uh, really noted in my head when I was reading your book. Uh, so on that note, there's another question from another Global Forum member what should it mean to be a politician, and what does it mean in reality, and how does this disconnect affect our government processes?
2: Well, uh, listen, I looked at myself as a government servant. Uh, I, never, I never considered myself a, a politician. I, I thought I was a public office holder, a public servant, if you will. And, uh, you know, I tried to do the best I could for my constituents and for the country. And, uh, that was my focus. It wasn't about power. It wasn't about, uh, it wasn't about anything other than that. Uh, but, uh, you know, the problem in politics is that, uh, we bring them all in some of the smartest people in America are in our Congress. And some of the dumbest, we've got some of the nicest people you've ever met. And we've got some of the raunchiest, uh, the American people sent them there. The founding fathers have to be rolling in heaven, watching this. You know, they created this big this big institution in the middle of our government called the Congress, knowing that the country would grow and knowing that the Congress would grow and grow to a point where they would never be able to agree on anything, which is exactly what most of them wanted. They mm-hmm. didn't want this big activist government in Washington, DC. And, uh, and just think about this, 535 people make up the Congress. You ever seen a committee of 535 people who could ever agree on anything? That's what we have. That's how it works. Uh, and so uh, a Congress acts when it re- they really have to act. Uh, sometimes they do a little more than that. But uh, at the end of the day, the system, uh, it doesn't work as well as the founders wanted it to. Uh, but uh, it, it, the system probably works better than any other system in the world.
1: Well, let's talk uh, about two specific uh, politicians. And uh, one of them is uh, your opinion. Do you think Paul Ryan will come back as a leader in the party ever? And that's Oh, from no. oh no,
2: no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Ryan, uh, Paul Ryan was a policy guy. Uh, you know, uh, after he passed uh, the big tax reform bill in 2017, I knew he was finished. Uh, that's all he never talked about. It's what he really wanted to accomplish. Uh, here was a guy who volunteered on my first campaign for Congress uh, in 1991, 1990. He was a student at Miami of Ohio. Uh, I helped him along the way, helped him get elected to Congress, helped him become chairman of the Budget Committee, helped him become chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. He's a great guy. Uh, but I, I no, he's not. He's not going back.
1: Thank you for that. And I am just now seeing that uh, my uncle actually has put in a question. He uh, plays from Charlottesville, Virginia. What do you like most about retirement?
2: Well, uh, I kind of like having have a little more free time. I don't like having things hang over my head. Uh, you know, things like this book that I wanted to do that just never quite went away. Uh, I needed to get it accomplished. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, i get to spend a lot of time with my two grandsons they're five and three and i love little uh little buggers and i uh, get to spend some time with them get to play a little golf get to play uh get to fish a little bit and uh part of the year in Florida, part of the year in ohio i used to get to dc about once a month but uh with COVID, that really hasn't happened mm. and i did go though a couple of weeks ago i was there for two or three days to do an interview uh, for this book And I I tell you what, it was so sad that uh, I I really couldn't wait to leave. Mm. So uh, I'm not sure how much time I'll be spending in in DC here in the future.
1: Mm. Well, we have a couple of more questions about uh, more specific politicians and one of them is mine. Uh, I'll get to uh, this other one and I'm trying to find it here. I don't see it. If I see it uh, again, OK, here it is. Uh, from Felicia in Tennessee, as a Democrat, she enjoyed your book, Don't Tell Anyone. And uh, what can your party do about Marjorie Green? And uh, and also, does McCarthy have what it takes to lead your party?
2: Uh, listen, I don't know this uh, Marjorie Green, the lady. I, I read uh, a few things about her, but I, I don't know her. Uh, but, I don't know much better. Uh, listen, Kevin McCarthy is a good guy. He's got a really tough job. Uh, it's uh, all the leaders today have a tough job. Uh, they got uh, loud members who uh, don't want to be led. Uh, they've got uh, loud voices in each party on each end, uh, hounding them to not cooperate with anyone. Uh, yeah, it's a really tough job, but I think Kevin's. Uh, I think Kevin's the right guy for it.
1: Okay, and I'm gonna uh, go to someone else uh, for my own question. Now, uh, instead of polarization across the spectrum, you have some rancor, rancor towards a member of your own party. You've called him Lucifer in the flesh. And in a clip where you went off script in the audio version of the book, you had other choice words, which we will not mention in the, uh, on the air right now in mixed company, where you spoke to him directly someone we know very well here at home in Texas, Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, Cruz retaliated at CPAC recently by saying, who's John Boehner? So does Cruz represent the recent shift in our politics to you? Or why do you have these feelings about him?
2: Well, no, he'd be a prime example of, uh, of a noisemaker. Uh, listen, this guy wasn't even a member of the U.S. House. He's a member of the Senate. And he's busy stirring up uh, some of the crazies Uh, in my caucus, uh, getting them to do crazy things that have no chance of success, uh, totally destructive. And uh, the guy never talked to me, I never met him. And uh, I thought to myself, this guy caused me more headaches uh, than anybody else. And so when I was writing the book, uh, you know, I nudged a few people, uh, but I I decided I'd do everything I could to annihilate this guy because he's an ass, (laughs) sorry. I know I'm talking to people in his own state, but.
1: (laughs) And there you have it. Okay. Well, uh, and and I think this is an an important point too. Uh, There are several articles that came out uh, after uh, having read your book or excerpts from your book. And what do you say to all those who argue you are party to and or responsible for what began the new political climate on the far right?
0: Hey,
2: listen, I did everything I could every day to push back on the nonsense, and I mean every day because uh, I couldn't. I couldn't get our team to work if I couldn't get these uh, these knuckleheads to work with us. And uh, and I tried and tried and tried. There's nobody who tried hard, uh, but it, it was outside of my control. The American people sent these members there. I didn't pick them the American People Center. And I tried to work with them. most of the Tea Party crowd became good Republican members. Now, this wasn't about the Tea Party. This was about uh, what I'll call the anarchist uh, who really just want to tear the whole system apart. Uh, and I guess in their own mind, rebuild it uh, in something that looks more like something that they would like. Uh, I don't quite, uh, I don't quite understand it, but there ain't anybody trying tried harder to stop the nonsense than I do.
1: Beginning with your reforms. Uh, when you first started.
2: You know, I, I never, I never, you know, I don't, I didn't reward bad behavior. I didn't go out of my way to make martyrs out of most of these guys, uh, but I did go out of my way to make sure I could do subtle things uh, where they got no rewards, like their bills didn't show up on the floor, or if there was a congressional delegation going somewhere overseas, they weren't on it. Uh, you know, I did everything I could, but uh, the, the, the forces out there uh, a raid against common sense uh, and a raid against finding common, common ground, uh, were much larger than me. Talk radio, cable TV, the internet, and frankly, it's only gotten a lot worse since.
1: Uh, from Alana Wayne-Rostro, we have a question. What are your views about today's political operation, especially since we seem to be in such a Victory, a victory-focused political climate is winning the primary job of a policymaker?
2: Well, uh, probably not. <laughs> you know, uh, today's primaries are, are, in most cases, essentially the election. You know, uh, most districts are pretty heavily Democrat or pretty heavily Republican. There aren't that many marginal seats uh, around the country. And so uh, again, who shows up and votes in the primary? The right to the right, the left to the left. So if we really want, uh, really want to send better people to Washington, uh, we need more traditional Democrats and traditional Republicans to show up and vote in these primaries and elect better people. It's not rocket science.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it was one of my questions uh, and Alana had just asked about uh, winning primaries. It was one of my questions to ask you you what your thoughts are and who are going to run on the Republican side. And then we also had a question from Laura a little while ago about that same thing. It's indicative of the way that our society works on how quickly we're already pivoting to the next election. And we've just had one. Is that a problem? And if so, how can we get away from it?
2: No, no, it's been going on since uh, cable TV came along. Uh, and it starts the morning after the election. Literally the morning after the election. They're talking about the, the the midterm elections, and they're talking about the presidential elections. You know, when you got... When you got... I'm trying to... I'm, 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 I'm holding myself back. Here. When you got these cable TV channels, and they've got to fill all 24 hours of noise... They put a lot of goofy people on there who've never done anything in their life except make noise. And uh, <laughs> and they fill a lot of people with noise. Uh, the internet, full of nonsense. I mean, it, it never stops. Uh, I had a friend of mine came up to me about a year ago and said, hey, Vader, you look pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I feel fine. He said, I got an email last night from a friend of mine who sent me this article that said you were dying of brain cancer and lung cancer. And you were... Th- Throwing uh, Paul Ryan under the bus. <laughs> I said, well, all news to me because I feel fine. So uh, uh, be careful of where you get your news. Uh, read a broad enough array of input so you can really figure out what's going on. Uh, nobody's got all the tools here. I mean, I, I, read, uh, I read a dozen newspapers and probably another dozen rags uh, trying to figure out what the truth is. And it really is hard to figure out what's true of this. I give you an example. I was in Dallas uh, right after uh, right after your big snowstorm, and right after the electric all went out, and uh, and so I'm reading the Wall Street Journal about the problem and what's the cause of it is. I read the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I, I see their analysis of it. Well, then I go to the Washington Post, and then on to the New York Times two diametrically opposed analyses of what the problem was. Why can't somebody at least put the facts out there and let people decide what the the problem is? We still don't know. I don't know if Texans know what the problem is. It's probably just a polarized view in Texas of what the problem is uh, as the rest of the country sees it.
1: Mm. Well, we just have a minute or so left uh, before we move on uh, to our second phase with global, the Global Forum. But uh, I want to ask you, are you leaving a legacy behind? And if so, what is it? And what is the main message you want people to know about you?
2: Well, no, I've never been in this legacy business. Uh, my, my staff kept a list of things that I would was fond of saying. They called them banerisms. In the back of the book, there's an appendix, a whole list of them. Doesn't cost anything to be nice. Uh, you can disagree without being disagreeable. I'd rather be heckled than ignored. Uh, no, there's a whole list of them. And uh, I mean, listen, I, all I ever want to do was be me. Uh, as I said in the book, my fondest accomplishment was that I walked out of Congress after being there for 25 years, pretty much the same jackass I walked in. I didn't want to be somebody that I wasn't. I didn't want to act like somebody that I wasn't. Uh, And my friends, uh, especially the guys I grew up with and went to high school with and college with, they'll tell you I'm still the same jackass now as I was then. Uh, You can do this job without letting power uh, get to your head and uh, turning yourself into a jackass. Uh, It just doesn't need to happen.
1: Well, uh, that's why I kicked this off with that quote, because I knew that you would like that. And uh, I thought it was very you uh, from the personality that we know in your book and we knew while you were in Congress. Uh, So... And I'm glad you mentioned that because we didn't get to your banerisms, but I loved those by the way. And they are in the back of your book. I wanted to encourage everyone to take a look at them, but uh, they're what you call your own set of rules, handy sayings and phrases. So I encourage all to check it out. And uh, John, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. I will be going very soon to enjoy an excellent glass of red. But before we go, I want to encourage everyone to head over to our YouTube channel to check out past programs at DFW World.
0: That was a great conversation. So thank you both very much. Uh, Can't wait to read the book. And speaking of book, if you would like to get another copy of On the House, a Washington memoir, there's no better place to do it than bookshop.org backslash shop, backslash DFW world. And we would get uh, 10% back to the council. And that goes for any other books that you uh, pick up at the same time. So we would appreciate the support. Um, As always, you can catch any of our programs, past programs on our YouTube channel. And if you're not a member of the council, Uh, Please join us, we'd love to see you more and I look forward to a time when we can all get together uh, in person, safely,